FIA welcomes you to The Art Parlor, where visually impaired artists of all types will discuss their work. Pull up a chair, bring your beverage of choice, and listen to thoughtful, stimulating conversations with visually impaired artists in all media and from all parts of the world. And now, here's your host, Nancy Pendergraf. Welcome to Art Parlor. I am Nancy Pendergraf, and I have Anne Geppetta and Peter Altschul with me, and hopefully we'll have some more people who want to come and join us on this side. But for our guest, we have Mike Mandel. And I'm so excited because Mike is such a good advocate for us and such a fine musician and a good teacher. And he happens also to be the president of Friends in Art. So welcome, Mike. And we're glad that you have agreed to be interviewed by us. (laughs) Thank you very much, Nancy. I'm pleased to be here. Well, I met you in 92 when I came to convention. And at that time, you had Clyde the Guide and started work with uh, the MIDI goings on. Actually, all of us were total novices with the internet. I mean, it was totally new. (laughs) And so we've come on a long journey. But shall we go back? Now, I know you, you had school at the Washington School for the Blind in, what did you tell me, Vancouver? Vancouver, Washington, yes. Uh-huh. And didn't think much of the piano lessons they immersed you in. No. Uh, what I failed to mention when we went over to this last night, and by the way, I apologize to folks. Sometimes my speech may sound like I'm inebriated. That is not the case. Uh, I had a stroke about a year and a quarter ago, and once in a while, it affects my speech. Uh, no, I went to Washington State School for the Blind when I was about eight. And before piano, we tried violin. And I did violin, then uh, I was eight years old. I did violin for a week, and they said, oh, no, we should put you on the drums. Uh <laughs> But, you know, the, the noises I was making on the violin, I had no aptitude for it at all. So I did drums for a little while, and then I was introduced to piano. I liked playing piano, but I liked playing what I wanted to play, not what they gave me to memorize. Uh, I wanted to pop tunes and a little bit of jazz, and uh, that, that was a really was my interest. Did, until, did you uh, learn I, music? Yes, I did. I'm glad I did. I, I have a user for a while. I'm sorry to say, but oh, yes, indeed. I'm very grateful for Braille music and Braille in general. Me too. I'm curious. This is Peter. Uh, clearly, the Washington State School for the Blind Music Department didn't acquaint you with jazz and pop music. How did you get acquainted with that? No. Well, uh, it was personal taste, really. What happened when I started playing the drums, my dad sent me a record, and he would send records from time to time, and he happened to send one by a Dixieland group 
called Pete Daly and the Chicagoans. And I heard this music and went crazy. It had energy, and now I know it had spontaneity. And uh, I was really attracted also to the excitement of it. So that, that began an interest. Was your dad a Pardon musician? Me? Was your no, dad he was a, not. Uh, well, he owned a restaurant, he was, he was, was telling us. Yeah, he was right. He was a restaurateur. And here we go. He was also a bookie. Well, all right. And uh, so the yeah, so the song he sent me was called "Daily Double." Was uh, the A side of the record, and "Daily Double," of course, is uh, a feature in horse racing. So I think that's why he picked it. But it got me started in this exciting music. Oh yeah. So, what was it in high school when you went to the Catholic high school, right? And went back yes, home? Yes, I went uh, for eight years to the School for the Blind in Vancouver, and then uh, went home to Yakima, which was, all oh, about 200 miles away from Vancouver, and uh, went into a Catholic school, an all-boys school, it was a great school, uh, Jesuits, and they're tremendous teachers. The problem that I had there was it was an all-boys school, and I was about 16, and I didn't want to meet all boys. And that's how I took my piano playing and used it as a social tool so I could meet girls. And that actually was the beginning of my public performance career. So then you formed a, a little band along about then, right? Yes. There were uh, a few bands that I was a part of, two or three, before I went into this group called the Checkers that had been formed, but they had lost their piano player. And I stayed with the Checkers for as long as I was in Yakima. And that band was a fun band. We were a pretty good rock band, and at one point, we needed a guitar, and we got Larry Coriel, who did live in Richland, Washington at that time. He was only 15, and just an amazing player. And so uh, we got gigs backing so-called name-pop acts in the Northwest, and uh, also we did the Southwest and Midwest. We had musical experience with Larry, and I had a musical experience from learning from the musicians in my dad's club. Uh, they, they played old-time stuff, but they played the old standards, and I got to learn at an early age you know, several old standards, and uh, they gave me a little bit of harmony and so on. So that increased my love of music and my interest, and certainly my interest in harmony and jazz. That curiosity continued to grow until and after I went to the Berkeley College of Music in New England Conservatory. So, Mike, here you are, a bunch of high school kids. How did you get the gigs? You know, to play with those acts. How did that happen? Well, we were all Yakima boys, and there weren't that very many of us 
in a small town that wanted to do this thing. So we just have musicians kind of found each other, and that's the way that happened. And the way we got these gigs, uh, backing people like People would know these names from 60 years ago. Jan and Dean, Bobby V, Freddie Cannon, for crying out loud, uh, Roy Orbison. That was only oh, three nights, but that was that was very good. Yeah, we played with Roy Orbison in New Mexico. And uh, the way we got those gigs was I got on the phone and called an agency in L.A. called GAC, which backed talent. I I was maybe 18. I, I had no idea what I was doing. I just had this huge desire, you know, to get out and succeed in that world. And so it just happened fortuitously that the switchboard operator switched me to somebody. I told him what we did. And he said, oh, well, how would you like to go out on tour with Bobby V? And the Ventures. Remember the Ventures? Walk Don't Run? Yes, Walk Don't Run. Yes, sir. Uh, they, <laughs> yeah, they, they were a Seattle act. But they were originally four players, but two of the players dropped out and didn't want to tour. So the two lead guitar players would go out on tour alone and use a pickup band. And it so happened we were the pickup band, that and Bobby V. So fortuitously, and without even hearing us, we were booked on a Midwestern tour. And that's how it went. And uh, it was it was quite something. It was about 1960 then, maybe 61. And we bought this Plymouth and, and got a, a car top carrier and had these heavy amps and drums and all that. And we're always messing up the suspension on the Plymouth and blowing <laughs> U-joints, whatever, whatever that is. And... There were five of us, actually six of us, because uh, we brought a singer from Seattle who called himself Little Bill, and he was a friend of the guitar player that we picked up after Larry Coriel went to college and we needed a new player. And um, so there were six of us crammed in this Plymouth station wagon. It was $1,000 a week. We paid the gas. We played... We paid for the motel, and we paid ourselves. And I think after that tour of, uh, oh, gee, we went, I don't remember where we started. Oh, yeah, no, we started in Davenport, Iowa, and we played all the ballrooms in that area, Minnesota, Iowa, Wisconsin. We played a place called the Indiana Roof in Indianapolis and all of that. Or in some place in the world we played Omaha, yes. And uh, I came home with a plus of seven dollars. <laughs> after well, all, after you, all that, after all that touring, well, <laughs> it was get fun, and we. Yeah, that, that's it. But listen, we were, we were teenagers. It was fun. We were thrilled to be doing what we were doing with who we were doing. And, yeah. you know, somehow 
crammed six in a car with instruments and everything else didn't seem to bother this bother us and we were we played in the winter and in the winter trying to travel from gig to gig that must have oh. been very difficult oh what well, it was murder one time they booked us, we played in Libertyville, Illinois, and then the next night we had to be in St. Joe, Missouri. And uh, we had to drive all the way, you know, with no sleep, and it was cold. Uh, I remember another time, I believe it was in Canada, but it was maybe Port Arthur or Fort Williams. I'm trying to think of the name of it. And we didn't. We barely had enough gas money, so we got up to the Canadian border, and they had closed for the night at midnight, so it was 26 below, uh, with the wind blowing off Lake Superior and the Pigeon River, and so we got out, and they didn't open the uh, the station again until 6 to let us across. And we didn't have enough gasoline and gas money to run the heater all night. So uh, we got out and got into our suitcases and we put on everything we had. We, we were wearing tuxedos in the cold, uh, just trying to, get, to stay warm in the car. I mean, we had all kinds of goofy adventures like that. Well, Okay, so this was in the six. This was about early sixties. Very early sixty. Uh, the band, the the band disintegrated in nineteen sixty two. So we we were touring. I would say late sixty sixty one and sixty two. Oh, we also played. You know, we played with. Remember Gene Vincent, B. Bapalula. Yep. That was I big did. stuff. That was as close to Elvis as we ever got. And we played <laughs> with him quite a bit. And he, and he liked us. And we thought we were cool because that was the real rock and roll, we thought. <laughs> you know, none of this uh, Frankie Avalon nonsense or uh, or any of that stuff. This was, this was the serious rock and roll. So uh, we, we enjoyed that. So after y'all broke out, so the, then what? Well, then I moved from Yakima to Seattle and uh, was broke for a little while and then moved in with uh, two guys into uh, an apartment and I got a job from a local DJ playing at a teenage nightclub. The idea was that every table had a phone on it and somebody worked a switchboard so people could do their various pickup games on the phone. They could call over to a table. Guys would call call over to a table where there were girls and you know and run their game and that kind of thing. And I played there for a year and a half, and that was right next door to Seattle's Jazz Club, where uh, even though I was underage. The owner would allow us to stand back where they hung the coats and listen to acts. Oh, gee. I mean, Ahmed Jamal and uh, Art Blakey, people like that.
And then, of course, uh, then shortly thereafter, I turned 21 and uh, hung out there a lot. But then after, let's see, after that, after the uh, trio, uh, we got booted. The trio got booted because there was a franchise of Herb Alpert music. And so the club that we were playing in changed from a teenage dyke club to a club that featured local people playing charts of Herb Alpert. <laughs> and uh, that fell on its face. But after that, uh, I started playing Hammond organ, and I started getting a good education in the Seattle ghetto. I was playing B3 organ, tried to imitate Jimmy Smith. In those days, Jimmy Smith was a hot, funky organ player back then. And uh, we played there for two or three years. That was a lot of fun. There were people there that gave me good, you know, beginning music education on uh, music and music business. And I played there and then in another club in the same area for another two or three years before I decided that I wanted to go to school, which took us to about 1968. And I wanted to go to school at the Berkeley School of Jazz. That's what it was called then, now known as the Berkeley College of Music. And I had married. And so we took a month driving through Canada wife was from all the way to Boston to get settled to go to Berkeley. Yeah, so so in 68 is when you went went to Ber- Berkeley. That's right, fall of 68. Yeah, fall of 68, yes. Mm-hmm. That's when you met, I, I mean, not that y'all stayed acquainted necessarily, but you met Janice at that time, because she was in the library, right? Uh, well, that's right. As a matter of fact, my first uh, request to Berkeley came back and, uh, you know, it, it was a big no. And so I, I didn't know what to do. So I reached out to the only blind organization I knew, which was the National Library for the Blind. And by God, there was Janice Avery. And I told her my problem and uh, she got on it. And that was helpful. But the thing that finally got me into Berkeley was Larry Coriel was playing with vibist Gary Burton. And Gary Burton was pretty close to Berkeley. And so Gary uh, intervened for me and and thus they accepted me at Berkeley. And so you were at Berkeley for? Uh, For about two and a half years. I was in Boston and then I moved over to New Conservatory, who has started the jazz program. What did you learn going to Berkeley and New England Conservatory? You know, you obviously had done a lot of touring, a lot of experience under your belt. What did you yeah. learn from those programs? Well, I had the playing experience and the sense of what I wanted. Berkeley, which was first, really gave me a nice, solid academic background in music. It was me you know, my Perkins Brailler and a couple books. And they gave me a lot of private classes. I did do some in-class work, but I had I had private teaching. And that was fun because I could go at my own speed. 
So I took advantage of that. Well, the thing that I, well, ear training, they did some, uh, a, a bit of, of jazz orchestration, harmony. The, the thing that I loved was harmony. And so I really put my energy into harmony, plus uh, performance, of course, uh, piano performance and repertoire. Yes. And then I, I would pick and choose from the menu of stuff they had there. There was a guy named Herb Pomeroy, and Herb Pomeroy taught a class called Lines, which was another way of arranging for big band. And I don't remember much of it, but his system was somewhat modal and building lines rather than chords. And uh, I found that interesting. So we just found the whole immersion in professional music really, really suited me because I'd come from a rather loose, not very professional bunch of people in Seattle, which is one of the reasons I look back to now. I didn't know how unprofessional we were, but I sensed, you know, that there was more and I wanted to go get it. Now, you were still playing gigs on the side with with Larry at that time, right? Oh, yes. What happened with Larry is uh, he had moved to New York a few years prior and was working with Gary Burton and then went out on his own and had a trio. And he was playing in Boston, where I lived at the time, and his bass player overdosed. He OD'd and died, and Larry needed a bass player. And so he came to my apartment and asked me if I would take my Hammond organ and cover that for him. And so, you know, we did. Uh, we brought the organ to the uh, uh, jazz workshop, was the name of the club. And I covered for Larry. And then from then on, uh, Larry had me record a couple things with him. And then he used organ, drums, a guy named Steve Hawes uh, on drums. And, and we were kind of a jazz organ trio. Uh, one of the funny things I recall was we got a last minute gig at something called the Singer Bowl on Long Island. It's since been renamed, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an arena. And we were open for Led Zeppelin. And whatever band was going to open for Zeppelin didn't do it, couldn't do it. So we did it. And, and you can imagine jazz guitar, organ, and drums opening for them. We probably sounded like a transistor radio up there you know, to the audience, and then Zeppelin came on and, of course, filled the room. Well, hey, that was, um, this is Annie. That, that, go ahead, Annie. Mike, I, I'm fascinated by what you're saying. And all the time you're talking, I'm thinking, like, I really want to know how your blindness was, how it affected other people, especially in the, in the, in the business. In the music business, were there times where well um, people were like, you know, like, what, he's blind? Like, I mean, or was it like, you know, I just, what was it like back then? I mean, we're talking, you know. Well, I'll tell where- you. 
Yeah, I'd like to know. Yeah. Uh, my experience was that I had some credibility because Larry had credibility. Thus, I didn't hear anything from, uh, let's say, the club owners or people who were booking it. You would have uh, certain members of the audience who who did not want to associate with a blind guy. Not Thank God there weren't very many boisterous ones, you know, but uh, you could tell. And there would be times when people would be invited to parties and I wouldn't be invited. That was the tough part of it. Yeah. Uh, really tough. Because, uh, you know, Nice girls and so on would come up and invite the bands that I played with to parties, and I would go back to the motel. Yeah, yeah, that yeah, did so not did, feel good, guys. No. That, that that was that was that was not fun. Did that change yeah. at some point in your in uh, history of your performing not, and being in bands? And- not a lot, not a lot. No, and I'll tell you the one that really kind of. Uh, messed me up because I thought, hey, playing in something looking like big time would would socially get me over, which, no, I was wrong. That was very wrong-headed. But I was playing uh, with Larry again with Jack Bruce. Jack Bruce was the bass player of the, of the group, 60s group Cream, which Eric Clapton played in. We played for six weeks in, in that group, and uh, we played in Texas one night, and everybody, you know, was, you know, we, we had a press meeting and a, and a before gig uh, press get together, an introduction to important people. And again, people were invited to a party, and I was not. And that's what really hit me. Hey, man, this idea I have of Jeff, I'm, uh, you know, if I play with the famous enough people and all that, you know, uh, people will be socially kind to me and accepting. That's when I kind of got the idea, hey, that's a wrongheaded notion, buddy, and uh, mm. do yeah. something about it. Wow, thanks for sharing that. I think that's really important for for listeners sure. to hear that, you know, we can accomplish so much, yet there's still a bias out there for people with disabilities. And, there is bias. Yeah. But you yep. you you just yep. you just seem to fly right by it most of the time and do what you want to do. Well, I mean, I'm so much admired. I, I do. I do. I'll tell you business-wise, where I was uncomfortable, it didn't seem to be well received were in ad agencies. When I'd go up to try and hustle a gig, I thought I wanted to do jingles because I did them at one point and, uh, and I really liked the work. In that culture, I was not well received. I don't know what I didn't do and what I didn't do and how I came across, but I just could not do much in ad agencies. They just... <clears throat> You know, blew me off. I'd bring wow. I'd bring them in then a, a cassette of something, and I'm pretty sure it was ignored. You were telling me that in I think it was '73 that you decided that you would. He's such an entrepreneur that he would make an arrangement 
was that in 73 when you bought your own studio? No, that that, that That was was in the 80s. Yeah, what happened? We'll we'll wait till we we, we'll we'll get there. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So I played with Larry's group, and gosh, we toured the U.S. a lot. We did tour Europe. That was a kick. And I'll tell you one one situation that was nice. We went to Paris. Of course, I was blown away. Paris, for God's sake. And uh, we were supposed to go to Barcelona after day off, and Barcelona was canceled, which meant we had three days in Paris. So what I did is uh, I got a cab, and I said, take me to the Rodin Museum. And thank God this guy knew, <laughs> knew what I was talking about, brought me to the Rodin Museum, and this lovely, lovely gentleman, the curator maybe, uh, I told him that, you know, that I had wanted to see if it was possible for me to, to check out the work of Rodin. And he said, yes, well, yes. And it was Rodin's house. So we started on the third floor, and I looked at Rodin's work, his sculptures and so on. He let me touch everything. And then there were some other artists on the first floor. That was really fortuitous, man, because uh, the rest of the time in Europe basically was just you know, to the gig, to the hotel, breakfast, hit the road again, and go to the next place. And we didn't have that much of a chance to get a sense of where we were. And you know, we were in Amsterdam, and we were in Copenhagen, and oh, Brussels. Brussels was a fun place. We were there for two nights. And that was really another kind of cool place. And when was this? This was in what year? This was in 1973. Oh, okay. Larry had just just formed his band, The Eleventh House, and we were promoting a record. And uh, so we were touring Europe then. He had quite a uh, successful recording career, didn't he? Larry, yeah, Larry had a, a successful career. God rest his soul. He died about three years ago. Uh, he was my best old friend, and without without Larry, I may not have had some of the credibility to have some doors opened. You know, so I played with Larry in two different configurations from about 1970. Three different configurations from about 1970 to the end of 76. And then I became a broke musician for about three years. You know, just. But you still lived in New York. I still lived in New York. I had a nice apartment. I did finally get a nice apartment. You've been to it, Nancy. In Midtown, New York. I live. Oh, yes. I live about three blocks from Times Square. So uh, uh, on New Year's Eve, I go out on my balcony and I get the hit of the energy and excitement without any of the other uh, discomfort of being jostled or anything like that. So it's kind of cool. It is cool. Yes. So three years, 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. When did you st- when did you become a guide dog user? Just I'm not sure how long you I became a guide dog this. user in about 1989. I was dating okay. a lady named Sherry Handy in 1988, the first blind woman I ever dated, and I fell in love with her. And uh, and I fell in love with her dog. So what finally what happened is no more Sherry, but I did get a dog. <laughs> So that, that Thank was, you for sharing that. that was, I appreciate that. Yeah, that, that was that was the introduction to a dog. I, uh, because I'd lost a little bit of hearing, started uh, a downhill on on hearing, and so I couldn't make the crucial decisions that I needed to make in New York. Plus, it was getting more congested. Uh, mm. I was losing the you know the sense of you know when you pass doorways. You know what doorway you're passing because you've done it before. And and other kinds of landmarks, like there are places, you know, where where you know you're passing under a tree and you can hear it and all that. I was losing losing that sense. And so a dog really, really became a wonderful help. Besides, I love dogs. I've loved dogs since I was a little boy. Even though I love guides and I'm, I'm a guide dog handler, emotionally, I'm still a six-year-old boy with a dog. <laughs> that, did did that's you get all your dogs from Fidelco? Fidelco? Yes. Every dog from Fidelco. I've had five dogs. My, my most recent dog, which retired last year, Fela, she just passed last week. She was wonderful. And uh, I'm waiting now. Oh, she sure was. Uh, A good guide, a loving dog, and she was really great looking, too. People always were saying she was beautiful. Now I'm waiting to hear from Videlco about another dog. Uh, They're telling me now that I've slowed down some, uh, from when I first had dogs, they have to wait and find a dog for me that's not quite as aggressive. Now, the puzzle there, I believe, is how do I get a dog who's a little, little bit slower but still can tolerate the hubbub of midtown Manhattan? Because that's what happens. We walk out of uh, the building door, folks, and we are in midtown Manhattan. Yeah. The right yeah, dog will a, come to you. You may have to wait, but yes, the right dog will. But be I hope you. not long, because I'm. It's, yeah, it's too. really hard to be with. Well, I want to bring you back. If I have to wait too long, Nance, you got to come and you got to bring your puppy. Good plan. Because I want to see. Plan. I want to see your puppy again. Yeah. Yeah. But um, I yeah. wanted just to go back and now talk about. Because we, we've talked about your band and your performance experiences so, and, and college some. So tell me, I, I, I know you were talking about that you decided to open a studio. And That's right. Tell us uh, about- okay. I had taken, I'd, I'd always liked electronic music. Uh, from when I first heard it, Stockhausen and so on. I liked it, and those were the days when I was smoking pot, 
and I really thought that was cool. I don't recommend it for young musicians. Uh, that is not a way to go. That That is a career cramp. Anything to do with chemicals ultimately uh, will stifle a career. But anyway, I got some, uh, some synthesizer training at Berkeley, and uh, eventually... In 1979, I was able, even though I owned a synthesizer before, it was the early model synthesizer that were monophonic. They only played one note at a time. In 1979, Sequential Circus Company made the Prophet 5 so you could play chords now on a synthesizer, which you couldn't before. Uh, because of a contact I had in California, I had one of the first prophets, certainly in New York, if not in the country. And so what would happen is that uh, people doing shingles who wanted synthesizers would call me. I'd go, I would go in, program the synthesizer, and whoever they had hired for keyboard would just read and play the part. And uh, this went on beautifully for six or eight months until the piano players got wise and said, why don't I buy a synthesizer and, uh, <laughs> and I'll read the parts and play them and we won't need the, the, the additional guy to come and program. So uh, I lost you know, work because of that, but I like the studio. So what I decided was some way or other, I would make my own studio business and people who came to be clients, they got what they saw. You know, they saw me, you know, they saw the blind guy and the synthesizers and eventually the blind guy with the dog and the computer and the synthesizers. So they knew who they were getting and, uh, I started doing demos. I told Nancy last night, the way I got my studio was that some people I knew in Seattle, I called and bartered a piece of land that my ex-wife and I had, and they accepted the land, and for the land, they sent me the basic setup for a studio. And I was surprised at that negotiation that they went for it, but... Uh, uh, you know, if you don't take I'm a chance, that you thought you to know. offer it. It's it's uh, quite an untraditional yes. transaction there, <laughs> but it well, it is. Yes, I I had been to a seminar that said it. You know, but the negotiation can be be simple. You can make an offer, you can be declined, and you can make a counter offer. You know, and people are declined all the time. And so I thought, well, thinking out of the box that way. So what if I'm declined for make, making this was sounds like silly offer of a piece of land, which was valuable. You had a, an acre's worth of timber in Washington State on a beautiful island. You know, so, what so kind it of was worth did they, did they consider a basic studio? What did you get in that transaction? Oh, uh, well, a board, a tape recorder, a couple synthesizers, microphones and stands, speakers, 
I think that's uh, probably leaving something up, but that's kind of uh, headphones. But that's uh, uh, basically basically so what I traded down, for. But like what you have now. Yeah, it's kind of like I have now, but you know, yeah, thank goodness the business uh, made a profit, and so I was able to add and move and so on. Uh, you know, to to. to more software, better synthesizers, better board, no more tape recorders, and uh, yeah. uh, uh, I've had a happy existence. So that um, the the when I did the jingles, it was nineteen eighty, the seventy nine eighty, maybe eighty one. And uh, finally, at 86, I got my own studio. I started doing demos for songwriters and did that for many, many, many years. And then one night, I got a call from an old school chum from New England Conservatory who asked if I would play synthesizer for a producer friend of his who is producing music for the Procter and Gamble soaps. Specifically, Another World was the, the name of the show. This was in 1985. And so I started a career, and uh, a gentleman named Tom James mentored me in his way of thinking about TV. TV music and how it should be done. It would be considered old-fashioned thinking today, I think. And so he started me. And since then, I've looked forward to, and starting in 1999, uh, almost exclusively, I write for TV now. And uh, yeah. I write for the production you company. You are for Ellen DeGeneres. Ellen DeGeneres, TMZ. Uh, no, I didn't work no. for them. Uh, okay. I worked for the house that did their theme, but I did okay. not work for them. I was not the writer. Okay. Yeah. The uh, that house was a, was the house of produced for Procter and Gamble, and they did a lot of shows. I'm writing now. It's weren't for a Warner Brothers company, and there are a couple other small companies. I'm trying to break in. Uh, to a show called 48 Hours, which is uh, fun to write for, but it's, it's awful to study because uh, it's one of these shows that always has murders, you know, it has a real murder, real crime thing. And too often it's a female and a female brutalized. And watching that is troublesome but also, I need to study what they do, you know, what the music is. Sure. And so I have I a couple of submissions in, in there. Yeah. Nothing yet. I haven't question. heard anything. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, this is Annie. Uh, have you thought about writing music for podcasting? No, I haven't. And the reason is I'm not that familiar with what, a po what podcasting needs. I'm certainly not oh. opposed to it. <laughs> Well, you I, know, I, I, I think uh, of you every time I hear I watch I listen to podcast shows. Some of them are true crime. Some of them are more like, you know, informational. And they always have really interesting background music or intro music or uh -huh. exit music. 
and it's usually pretty simple, but you know, it, 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 it's catchy, you know, it, it kind of, uh, resonates with with the listeners you know and and reflects what you know the podcast is trying to convey uh-huh. so i don't know maybe you might want to maybe he does such yeah. variety he's done things with the sports programs but it does the uh, yes. oh and football games and stuff that's like that. right he's yes done. oh that's right, Nancy. In the early, uh, uh, this this is cool how this happened. In the very early 2000s, I got a call from a guy who knew a guy I know who was a songwriter, and he wanted a piano lesson. So he came over, and it so happened he was hooked up with ABC Sports. And so he got me hooked up with them also. And I was one of four or five writers writing the halftime music uh, under the scoreboard as they as they would show these college games and show the progress of the games. You know, they would make comments and we were the music under the comments. And that was fun to do. And they, uh, I remember, I got a kick. I saw it in my statement. They, they played me on the Rose Bowl one day. And I thought, well, that is kind of cool now. Wow. So, so, Mike, talk to me about a typical gig that you get. So how do you get the gig? How do you prepare for the gig? How do you record the gig? How do you get it to the okay. right people? How, how, you know, talk me through how it, sort of assignment works. All right. Well, let's take uh, TMZ. That's who I do most of the work for. I usually just submit to them anyway, but I got uh, a note in August saying, Mike, why don't you send us some more of your comedy stuff? And so I started to develop they wanted a 10-song package, and uh, they left it to me to write what I wanted to write. They... Uh, They've had enough experience. But what I tend to send them is light, happy, sometimes a little goofy, and it suits the show. So uh, what I do is I'll, I'll work up something, and before I put the final touches on it and mix it, I'll send a copy out to the uh, music supervisor, and I'll say, how about this? Does this work? And he'll write back usually and say, yeah, yeah, it works. Why don't you button it up and uh, include it in the package? And so I will sit down and I'm trying to think. I, I will sometimes listen to Eboy. I'll listen to the show and I'll pick something that kind of turns me on and use that as a reactive place. I, I, I'm a kind of musician who needs to hear other music and then react to it, and then something will come out of me, and it may be entirely different but what I heard, but something is, is inspired. So I'll sit down and I'll perhaps, let's say it's a funky, happy thing, I'll look for a bass line and a drum line initially, and see if I could get something going. I may uh, reference, let's say, James Brown, Sly and the Family Stone, or the Meters, or some of the R&B bands, Earth, Wind, and Fire, all of these kind of groups. 
and see if something hits me that I can come up with a groove that I like. And then from there, I'll start building maybe a guitar background or a piano or an organ background, depending on the groove, and then try out horns and see if a horn line will work and do it that way. Then uh, what I will do is I'm a guy who goes back and forth a lot. That is, I'll listen and I may say, oh, that that isn't as cool as I thought it was yesterday and uh, uh, change it again. And then uh, eventually mix the thing and uh, send it on, in this case, out to Burbank. And by sending it out, I see you do it by email or you do it by Dropbox or something? Yeah, by email. Yeah, yeah uh, well, yeah, uh, Dropbox. I send, these, I send these selections via Dropbox, yes. Okay, so I guess the, the last question I have for you, uh, of course, we haven't talked about any of your work in the advocacy field, but that may be for another show. But what I'd be curious about is, what advice would you give to a young blind person who who has musical talent and wants to break into the music business? What advice would you give them? Well, I I would suggest, I've got to think about a young person. I I would suggest to them, you know, that they do a lot of listening, uh, have an area that uh, they want to focus on as their strong point. One of the uh, Difficulties I had with picking them was singing here, but I would say, well, tell me what you do. They, oh, I do everything. And oh boy, usually what I heard was everything means, oh, holy God, I'm desperate. Please hire me, you know? And uh, so I said, pick, pick a point where you think you have strength. Um, Record if you can, or get an example to the highest. How do you do to the uh, uh, to the highest grade that you think that's you can my, that's get? My, that's my that. new dog. That's my new dog, by the way. He says hi. Yes, indeed. Well, hi, buddy. Welcome aboard. <laughs> Sorry, welcome Doc, aboard. Like What's this? <laughs> that's all great. That's okay. So I think that part of it is is the focus on your strength. And be ready to present that. So if somebody asks you what you have, you can tell them what your strength or strengths are. Um, And also, I would suggest that uh, you get some visual input into your presentation. What I'm thinking here is if you're going to an agency or an ad agency or introducing yourself to a potential manager or club owner, for instance, there's not that much club work. I would try that and get input as to your presentation in dress, posture, and also maybe your personality a little bit. As to uh, you don't want to come off too strong, you don't want to come off too weak, and you don't want to come off wrong-headed. Although I tell you, you will make all those those mistakes in the course of a career. Uh, In terms of uh, getting into a television career, there are some services out there. Maybe the biggest is called Taxi, 
where you join for a year and you can submit your songs and professionals will listen to it and give you criticism about it and perhaps pass it on to a record company, to uh, a jingle house, or who knows now, maybe for uh, some streaming organization. I don't know all the possibilities that are out there. the other thing I would say is when you're meeting somebody or when you're taking instruction from somebody uh, as to, here's what I want in my package, somebody may tell you, or here's what I want in this song, uh, they may not use musician terminology. For instance, the word tempo, they may say, oh, well, it needs to be more up-tempo. And in the case I'm thinking of, what the person meant was a little more enthusiasm, please. You know, it needs, needs to be a brighter mood as opposed to a musical tempo. So you want to listen to the person you're listening to. If they're a music librarian for a TV show, remember that that's what they are, is a music librarian. And they may or may not have the music lingo to speak with you. So be ready to listen. And once you've listened, ask questions of of refining the work. Well, when you said this word, did you mean, or well, let's say, when you said jazzy, you wanted something jazzy for your show. What jazz are we looking at here? Because it could be Louis Armstrong, it could be super contemporary, or some people would consider Frank Sinatra jazz. So with that case, you want to be a good listener, and for God's sake, don't put the person down or put them in a position of having to defend their position. Uh, Don't argue the position with them discuss the position with them. Uh, Believe me, all they have to do is open the door and say, next, uh, uh, it will be a big deal. You know? Yeah, that's it. You know, and uh, um, so go ahead. We have had, it's always these, these hours, they just fly. And we didn't even cover anything about advocacy or what you've done for us in Friends in Art and all, but we enjoyed so much learning about your music and about your studio and about your compositions for television and like that. It's just been an honor and a pleasure to have the chance to interview you. And we thank you so much for being with us. I had a good time. I told you this might happen. Start me up, and then get out of the way. <laughs> and, uh, and then there I go. Uh, I, w- I would love to come back because I would love for folks to hear about our friends and art activities and what we've done. Uh, and friends and art has participated in that. Hopefully, makes a difference in people's lives, like. The program for blind students at Berkeley, uh, the Mini Mag, which is a list 
uh, the people to get on, young engineers and, and MIDI people, et cetera, et cetera. And we have a lot more that you all know about and you've all contributed to. So why don't we find a way to inform people about these things? And for those, for the listeners out there, who would not want to join Friends in Arc with such a cool president? I mean, you you know, that's a reason alone to join, to be part of such an organization. And you can do that by going to friendsinart.org. And you can do all kinds of cool things there. And we encourage you to do that. Mike, thanks for joining us. Oh, and we'll, we'll, we'll have you back. You're welcome. Peter, may I interrupt you here? Would you please briefly talk about the scholarship you are the chair of. Yeah, very very quickly, we have raised our scholarship from $1,500 to $2,000. If you're interested in applying, please go to acb.org slash scholarship. The information about how to apply is there. The good news about that approach is when you apply through them, you won't just be eligible for our scholarship, but you will be eligible for other scholarships that AC puts out as well. And okay. the deadline is not what it used to be. The deadline is February 15th, 2022. So get busy. So get, get busy and we wish you well. So thank, thank you. you These are annual scholarships. These are annual scholarships. Yes. But the, the most current one yeah. is due February 15th of 2022 for yes. acb.org slash scholarship. So thank you, Michael, again. Oh, you're welcome. And th- guys, thank you so much. I mean, really. Thank you, Mike. Friends and Thanks, Art is such, such a warm smart, friendly place for those of you who think that, that we, you know, at Friends of Art, that we talk about James Joyce and eat wine and cheese. <laughs> uh, you know, the, I can't think of a time when we've talked about James and Joyce, but I do we remember might have wine, and wine and cheese. some wine and cheese. <laughs> That's right. But, and some beer. But we, we invite right. everybody, Chips. please, yeah, the James Joyce people, you're welcome. Uh, jazz people, pop people, uh, contemporary Christian people, hip hop people. Please, we, we want I mean, a fine, fine representation. Art Parlor is brought to you by Friends in Art and ACB Radio. It airs beginning every Saturday at 8 p.m. on ACB Radio Mainstream. To listen and for a full schedule, go to www.acbradio.org slash mainstream. Art Parlor is also available as a podcast. Just search for Art Parlor in your favorite podcast app. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at artparlor at friendsinart.org and please feel free to check out our website, www.friendsinart.org. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next month.